Hey, welcome to Night School, the antithesis of NPR. That's my new slogan, the antithesis of NPR. I've never even really listened to NPR, maybe in somebody's car. NPR in somebody's car. I don't know, whenever I hear about it, I, I feel a certain level of disgust. And whether that's justified or not, I will go ahead and invoke the, the acronym NPR in saying I'm the opposite. I'm the opposite. Turns out I'm just like them. I'm just like them. But uh, what I'm going to be talking about today is the idea of collectability. And I don't really know entirely where I'm going to go with this, but it fits in with this idea of the nostalgia mill that I talk about a lot, uh, which, you know, when I bring that up, when I bring up the nostalgia mill, it's more of a modern thing. It's more this post-internet take on nostalgia and, uh, you know, permanent childhood and, you know, remember Obama, which is the, the most, I mean, that, that's just pure parody. Remember Obama? You know, it's, it's this idea too, that time is speeding up so fast that even things that were, that happened two years ago, uh, are, you know, suddenly like some memory, some distant memory. Remember Obama? Sort of like that, though, and I think an example of that was a lot of people were kind of like, what the fuck, when that uh, Facebook movie came out, which was probably even like 10 years ago now, right? With time speeding up the way it is, the way I'm talking here, uh, that Facebook movie probably came out like, what, like 2011? Probably came out quite a while ago, but I remember when that came out, a lot of people were like, how could this be coming out already? You know, what is there even to, to reminisce about? You know, shouldn't this be coming out in 10 years or something? But we do live in that world where I think the, the speed at which things suddenly come to our come to the forefront, uh, the speed at which we become aware of things, at which things become popular, and, and, you know, how short-term so many things are, how fleeting everything is, of course you'd make the movie about it like two years later. You know, of course you'd make the movie about it right away. Of course you would. The NPR movie. <laughs> probably be like the worst possible thing I can imagine is the NPR movie somebody's gonna listen to this and think what's wrong with NPR I listen to NPR in the car <laughs> um, I'm here I'm, I'm doing a lot of great marketing for him you can listen in the car NPR um, but this idea of, of this like immediate nostalgia nostalgia for things that just happened is sometimes how things feel, uh, and especially in the internet world where things are easily published, easily distributed. It's, it's very easy to be nostalgic about things that were very recent, and that's just a, you know, that's just an example of how everything seems to work, you know, in the same way that the internet has bled into everything and everything's bled into the internet, and it's kind of transcended, you know, internet is even almost a nostalgic term to me now. You know, there's there's so much else going on. There are so many more devices. I mean, the Internet to me is something that you used to have to go sit down in your house to participate in or to access. And there are so many different dimensions to it now that even just calling it the Internet to me seems like, you know, somewhat archaic. Seems archaic. Archaic. Seems like archaic. Our cake. Seems like cake. Uh, but it does. It, it seems outdated. 
And the fact that I would call it archaic, it, you know, just shows how quickly time is moving, that something that was new, relatively new 25 years ago is suddenly ancient. It's ancient. That's an ancient term that people used to use. Uh, but to get back to my original point, uh, when I talk about the nostalgia mill, you know, the whole, it, it's it's more of a modern thing. It's more of what happened with the internet when suddenly people had access to everything they grew up with. It wasn't like you'd, because, you know, you'd run across maybe like He-Man action figures if you went to a a, a junk store. There was a store near where I grew up called Played Again Toys where you could get toys from basically the previous generation for really cheap. Disgusting things had probably happened to those action figures, and so you got them for, you know, a bundle for cheap. You got, like, a bag of He-Man action figures for a good price. And speaking of disgusting, I'm sitting on a couch right now. I don't normally do these episodes while couch-bound. So I just wanted to, you know, in this for the sake of transparency... Uh, you know, just to be totally upfront, I'm sitting on a couch, and therefore I'm a little bit more disgusting today. This episode's got a little bit, there's something a little more foul emanating from me because I'm sitting on a couch. The throne of lazy people, the throne of, of gross people, gross and lazy, those things go together. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I'm on a couch, but. You know, it used to be where you'd encounter certain things. I mean, maybe if you were like me or, you know, certain people, you held on to certain things or you, you had a very sharp memory when it came to the things that you experienced growing up. For whatever reason, you know, your brain held on to those things and you remembered them or you were just the sort of person who who, who kind of stayed interested to some degree. Uh, and by, by stayed interested, I don't mean that you had a passion for it. Because for me, it was like with action figures or pro wrestling or this or that. I would say I stayed interested in those things, but not in the se same sense that I did as a kid. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to continue to buy action figures and play with them. I'm going to continue to watch Monday Night Raw every week. It was more just that it just held a certain space in my brain that wasn't going anywhere. And so if I heard something about it, I, I paid attention. Or like if I went to a store, if I went to Fred Meyer or whatever, the, any store that would just have a toy section, there's always this part of me that wants to just go see what's there. Like I just want to see what they're selling these kids these days. It's not that I'm the guy who's going to go buy action figures you know, in, in well into adulthood. But I just kind of want to see what's there. And I wouldn't know what to call that except being interested. So, you know, your interest changes, but there is a certain space of my brain, at least, where I'm like, I kind of want to know what that what's going on there. You know, I just want to know what's what's going on in that world that I used to care about. <laughs> and that, that's what I say about everything these days. I just want to know what's going on in that world that I used to care about. <laughs> that explains everything now. Just total detachment. That's what I say to my old friends. I say, "Hey, how are you doing? Uh, you know, I, I it's great to see you, but I also, you know, you're you're like the uh, the town crier for me. You're like the messenger. I, I just want to know what's going on in that world that I used to be a part of. Uh, what kind of action figures they got at the store? I haven't been to a store in ten years." What kind of action figures they got? I mean, it's depressing now. If you look at, they have Fortnite action figures. They Kids don't care about action figures. There's just, just no way they care about action figures anymore. Uh, I used to, you know, sometimes if I was going out with my mom somewhere, I would just bring one of my action figures with me, maybe a couple. 
and you know you got a couple pockets they'll fit them so i just want to bring them with me and i don't see kids i don't see little boys out in the world today running errands with their mom just bring a little action figure with them just to kind of take it along for an adventure i don't see that maybe it's still happening you know granted i'm no longer part of the world but uh yeah, you know, I just don't see that same kind of interest. And, you know, it, if you look at the action figure section, I mean, Toys R Us is closed, first of all. <laughs> you know, I think that uh, case closed. Toys R Us is closed, case closed. Uh, I think that speaks enough. But if you do look at places just like Fred Meyer or, you know, any of those stores that are a grocery store slash, you know, cosmetics slash stores that have a little assortment of stuff, Walmart. You look at the action figure section, and it's it's pitiful. It's really pitiful. And it's okay, though. I embrace the fact that things change, and if kids don't care about action figures, I'm not going to cry over it. <laughs> at least not much. Uh, but this nostalgia mill we live in now, uh, it's you know, very much, you know, based around the fact that suddenly people who otherwise might not have, you know, stayed interested or checked up on, you know, the things that they were into when they were a kid. Like, they might forget about that cartoon they used to watch on Saturdays, but suddenly there's YouTube, and you can catch up on that. And and if you're not seeking it out yourself, you're going to randomly see it somewhere. You know, you're suddenly subjected to other people's nostalgia, and that in turn feeds your own nostalgia. And it became very much an industry. Whereas it, it, before it was more of a, a collector's industry or, a, you know, a, a, a niche market. There'd be conventions, you know, uh, swap meets, things of that nature. You'd go to certain stores that catered to collectibles. Uh, you know, I'm going to go buy that action figure I never got as a kid, but I'm going to buy it for $50 at a comic book shop. You had those sorts of opportunities. But suddenly with the Internet, with eBay with YouTube, with sites that were just designed to document stuff. I mean, that's such a huge part of the Internet is simply documenting things. You're exposed to so much more than you would ever have experienced organically or independently growing up. Uh, and it's, it's for everything, too. It's not just these you know, childhood interests, for example. I mean, it could be records. Uh, it could be anything. Uh, as if records aren't just a kid's interest. But, uh, you know, so the Internet very much created this new industry where you not only had access to it, but they started creating new products that catered to it. You know, it wasn't just, you know, you can buy some vintage promotional Legend of Zelda shirt. You know, uh, I finally found it. You know, there's places creating brand new products, brand new T-shirts. And you go out into the world and you see them everywhere. You go online and you see them truly everywhere. You see these things being marketed all the time uh, to adults. You know, everything is marketed to adults now where it's like, you know, hey, don't you want to have a T-shirt of that video game you played as a kid? It's so much of that. Uh, And... And it's not just, like, the new thing, either. It's not just that you're buying a T-shirt. Often you're not. Uh, I don't know why I'm using you. I don't know why I'm speaking that. This person, this this theoretical person who I see every day if I go out into the world, you know, it's not that they're buying, like, the latest Legend of Zelda game T-shirt. They're buying a new T-shirt, a newly produced, newly designed, modern T-shirt that's based on the game from 30 years ago. 
So it's still playing to this idea of nostalgia and, you know, these vintage sort of sensibilities, but it's creating a brand new product. And you look at people's cars. I mean, I see this all the time. I mean, there's a car uh, that I think they must work at the nearby Starbucks because it's in the parking lot there every day. It's a Starbucks employee, you know, and and of course it is, you know, of course, like a Starbucks employee, and this isn't nothing against them, but I can just vividly imagine a Starbucks employee, like getting their paycheck and being like, I'm going to buy that Legend of Zelda decal because there is one in the Starbucks parking lot. Like every time I go buy it, there's this SUV that has like a, I think it's like a Triforce, but they also have like a sticker of uh, that mask from the Nintendo 64 game. It's like it's a decal of that mask, which is, you know, a a more obscure reference. So you're even seeing that you're seeing a much more obscure nostalgia. And that's what happens when a nostalgia mill is created. That's when something like the Internet, you know, fosters this this industry that's built around nostalgia is you have to get more obscure. You have to get more nuanced. It's not it's not enough just to have like Pac-Man you know, or, uh, you know, Mario. It's like you got to have the weird mask from some game. You know what I mean? Uh, You know, you got to get into the details. You got to have those details. You got to have a a shirt that's like the Game of Thrones logo, but instead it says Legend of Zelda, and it has, like, you know, it's some sort of parody. Because these things do fall into parody very quickly in pastiche, as some people would say, not me even though I just said it, Uh, but pastiche, you know, there's this idea that pastiche, I hear it used sometimes, and how often do you really hear it used? Uh, But when I've heard it used, sometimes it's almost used, it's used in the same sense as like kitsch and, uh, you know, sort of parody in a way, or something that's just a very low, you know, quality, you know, something that's just intended purely for pop culture consumption. But I believe pastiche, it actually refers to almost like a combination of different popular styles. And that's sort of what a lot of this stuff is, sort of what a lot of of it is. It's sort of combining things, you know, it's cross-referencing. It becomes very cannibalistic. I think that's what happens in a nostalgia mill is, you know, things be, wires get crossed, you know, you gotta, you gotta not only have obscure things like the weird mask from this one video game, but it's like you gotta combine things, you gotta, you know, have parodies and parodies of parodies, and I think that's just the natural result of, of a nostalgia mill. And so, you know, just to get back to, you know, my original point is just that I see this all as a very new thing. But collectability and, you know, collectible culture goes back much farther. I mean, obviously, people have always been collectors of some sort, the wealthy in particular, the nobles, if you want to go back to, you know, ancient times, you know, and by ancient, I, of course, mean 25 years ago, the noble classes 25 years ago were collectors. Uh, but, you know, going back even Middle Ages and, you know, into the distant reaches of history, you know, nobles did like to collect things. They were always the collectors of art and objects. You know, peasants, uh, what did they collect? They collected wheat from the fields. Uh, but, uh, so collection, collect, collection. Are you collection? Geo, geo collection? Geo collecting um uh, but you know this idea of like collectability and collector culture is more new 
but it was distinct from this new world of, you know, cannibalistic, neo-vintage, oh, this sounds awful, uh, nostalgia mill, digital culture, uh, everything just falling and feeding back into itself. You know, what I'm referring to when I say, like, collectible culture, or collector culture, it was the swap meet. It was the collectible shop, which, you know, they had comic books. A lot of comic book stores served as kind of hubs for this stuff. You could go buy old toys there, you know, trading cards. I mean, there was a, a shop in my hometown run by this old man called Stamps, Coins, and Comics. Nothing else. That was just the name, and I love that simplicity. Just Stamps, Coins, and Comics. You're gonna, you know exactly what you're going to get there, except they also had cards. They had a lot of trading cards there, but it was a collectible shop, and it was run by this just mean old man, which is perfect. The idea of a mean person running a collectible shop is just funny. There's a miserable person who's just surrounded by vintage collectibles of different sorts, including comic books and kid stuff. But those guys get really detached from kids' stuff. Like, I had this memory of a friend and I, we were probably fifth or sixth grade, uh, and we were very knowledgeable, we were very conscientious. I would say that we weren't kids about our interest in comics and toys and stuff. I'd say we had a, a level of sophistication about it. I've gone on and on on here about how, as a kid, you know, we more... You know, more than anything, we made like kind of little movies out of our toys. It wasn't so much just throwing things against the wall or banging figures against each other. Or, oh, great, this guy has like a the rocket in his backpack backpack launches. Like I hated that kind of thing. Like I, I press a button and the rocket launches. I hated that. It was just usually it made the toy you know look stupid. It's like oh, he's got this bulky backpack you can't take off, and he shoots a rocket out of it just because I'm a kid. And I'm supposed to be impressed by like this little spring-loaded rocket, you know. I, you know, how is that going to help my little mini movie that I'm trying to make? Um, but you know, we I think my friend and I we had an air of sophistication about us, you know, as far as our interest went. And we were at a uh, a convention, I believe it was a comic convention, but we came across this table because at those at a comic convention too. Like I was saying, how comic shops were a hub for all kinds of other stuff as well. Comic conventions, too, were hubs for everything. I mean, you could find all kinds of stuff there. Uh, they were swap meets. They were, you know, just, you know, strange. You'd come across things you'd never seen before. <laughs> come across things you'd never seen. Uh, and we found this table where this guy was selling old G.I. Joe figures, the little three-inch ones, uh, three and three-fourths inch, I believe, is the exact size. Uh, and uh, there were a bunch of ones that we'd never seen in the flesh because, you know, while those figures were still around when we were kids, they had started making newer ones, like, and they all had spring-loaded backpacks and that kind of thing, but the guy had, you know, the first series of G.I. Joe figures, which they weren't selling in stores anymore. You know, those figures had been discontinued, and I remember we got really excited. We were like, oh, Beachhead. They got, they got the original Beachhead which is a guy's name. He wore a ski mask. You never knew what he looked like. I loved Beachhead for that reason, just because he was a guy in a ski mask. He wasn't some ninja. You know, he just had a ski mask on. That's it. 
Uh, but we got really excited and like you know started looking through, and all there were these figures that were still in their original packaging too. Of course, of course, if you're selling GI Joes at a comic convention, they better be in their original blister packs. Blister packs. We used to call them the card. You know, blister pack was a term I didn't hear until later. We would say, "Oh, he's on the card still. He's still on the card." It meant he was still like on that action figure backing the backboard uh, and uh, we started going through them very carefully but excitedly and the guy working the booth the man working the booth the merchant the gi joe the vintage gi joe merchant just flipped out on us and he said these exact words he said the joes watch the joes and he and he like grabbed them and pulled them away from us he said watch the joes in this very harsh way and he was this, he had like a mop top. He didn't look like your stereotypical comic nerd, whatever that is. He looked like your stereotypical G.I. Joe merchant. Uh, he was thin. I remember him vividly. It left an impression on me. It traumatized me. Uh, but he was very thin. He had some sort of curly mop top. He was pale. I don't know if he was pale. I don't remember that detail. But he flipped out on us. And... Not only did he pull the G.I. Joes away from us, it was a box with them, uh, and, and you flip through them like records or comics or anything. They were, like, stacked vertically. And not only did he pull the box away from us and chastise us, but as we walked away disgruntled, I saw him examining them closely. Because, you know, we obviously ripped them apart. But it's just that sort of anti-kid mentality, which on one hand I understand, but it's also, as I was saying about the owner of Stamps, Coins, and Comics, the old man in my hometown, there was something about people who immersed themselves, who became merchants of collectibles, who they sort of walled themselves off from the original intended market of these products where, you know, you start hoarding comic books, you start hoarding action figures and you start hating the kids who they were intended for. And, you know, like I said, it's like, I, I got annoyed by the friends of mine who, you know, lacked sophistication when they played with action figures, you lack in sophistication. Uh, I, that pissed me off and I didn't want to play with those kids. So it's not like I'm pro kid. It's not like I'm sitting here being like some kid apologist where it's like, you just got to take them out of the blister pack and throw them against the wall. What do you mean you're selling them for $50? You just got to rip, rip them out of the blister pack and throw them. You know, it's not like, not like I'm that kind of person either. But I did notice where these, these collectors and these merchants in particular, these uh, merchant collectors where they would... You know, take on this very... I mean, they're miserable people in, in some cases. I'm not going to say they all were. I remember, I remember actually having really good experiences with comic book owners and things like that. Uh, but there's just something about that where you wall yourself off, physically wall yourself off with this horde of uh, collectibles. And then because all these things, you know, you're constantly worried about those things becoming tainted or losing value... And so you you just you worry about kids touching them, uh, and it's just a weird world. It's just a weird world to live in, and it was weird getting a glimpse of that as a kid. And you know, I think as I, I think I've talked about this before, where you know, if something hadn't, you know, your life has certain paths you can take, and you make certain decisions. And I can see very easily where, if my life hadn't 
you know, gone down a certain direction, if I hadn't made a certain decision where maybe I would have become one of those guys. And I, I really wonder what those guys are up to now, because no doubt they were active on eBay. No doubt they found some sort of niche on the, on the Internet. I'm sure there was an initial boom for them. But I wonder what they're doing now, because a lot of the a lot of I don't know, a lot of the fuel behind that, you know, old collector world has kind of dried up. And I'm aware of that because I, I sell things on eBay. I go through periods where I go through, you know, storage. I go through old things that I owned and uh, I'll sell things on eBay. And the market is so different now where things that used to go for a lot of money aren't going for a lot. I think the oversaturation, the just the whole nostalgia mill itself, I think, has burned some of the some of the fuel up. I think that's the best way I could put it. Whereas these things used to be much more niche. They used to be, you did have to go to some basement swap meet, uh, and I highly recommend look up. Uh, there, I don't even know what site. I found it very randomly, not through my own searching. I don't remember how I found it, but I guess anime conventions. And I was never an anime person. I just got to make that clear. Uh, you know, I had a certain sophistication in my interest in action figures, but I was never an anime person. Uh, never a Japanophile. Uh, but uh, there's a site where someone had posted photos from an anime convention in New York City in the 1980s when they couldn't even get a hold of you know the VHSs and so they would have VHS dubbing parties at these basement conventions and they rented out like a Polish social club and just had this meetup in the basement where they traded manga and you know nothing was translated it was you know an entirely different world you know and that's the other thing I think I talked about recently where you know the anime boom coincided with the internet. Suddenly people had all this access to anime and Japanese culture that was a little more obscure. And even if like you were like me and played RPGs and things like that, you didn't really get a full taste of it. And you only got it in little doses, like from someone's rich cousin or something like that who bought a, a manga at the import store. It was like you just weren't very exposed to it. So the internet really gave people greater access to that. So I recommend looking up this 80s anime convention, and the guys look exactly like you'd want them to. They they look disgusting, beautifully disgusting, like truly. It's like you it, these photos couldn't be grimier and grittier. They are great. Like, look up 80s New York anime convention. And I say that with reverence. You know, when I say these people are beautifully disgusting, it's emphasis on the beautiful. I truly do see the beauty in that world. And being in a grimy Polish social club basement in 1980s New York City and just being these, like, bloated nerds, you know, who had a truly obscure interest and little did they know this thing would blow up and like every kid, you know, from generation Z grew up watching like anime inspired cartoons that weren't actually Japanese. They were like Digimon, like, you know, just like basically pastiche, you know, to go back to that word. I got to lose that word. I shouldn't be saying that word just doesn't, doesn't roll off my tongue in a way that, that sounds respectable. Uh, but look that up, just a complete tangent, but look up that 80s anime convention. But uh, uh, that, that's nostalgia. I have nostalgia for those photos 
because you can have nostalgia for things that you never experienced. And I feel like that's what happens when people dig through history books and they're like, they almost have this sense of nostalgia for, you know, it's happened to me when I used to look at like pictures of towns in the 1950s. And, you know, I experienced that a lot, I would say, as a nostalgia for things that I didn't have the opportunity to experience. And in that way, maybe just nostalgia itself is that. Where even if you experienced it, you're not experiencing it the same way as you did when it happened. So you're almost experiencing something separate from your own experience. But that's getting kind of deep. But yeah, this idea, this collector world before, though, and, you know, it, it changed. And I think certain things lost value and there was this oversaturation. And suddenly things that were harder to find were all on eBay at the same time. Uh, things that you might only find, you know, once in a blue moon were suddenly all available. And it's the problem with thrift stores, too, whereas, you know, thrift stores, you know, you know, there was no eBay, so people didn't comb through thrift stores. You know, the collector, the merchants did, the people who were going to be active participants in swap meets and conventions and things like that, people who owned these sorts of shops, they might comb through a thrift store looking for stuff, looking for little jewels, but the average person wasn't going to do that unless they were actually a collector of that thing. They weren't going to go out seeking that. But now we live in a world where you can. You can go to the thrift store and find everything and, and sell it on eBay yourself. Uh, and it's it's easy to look up like what's rare, what's not, even if it's something you have no interest in. I mean, there's people who go to bookstores and they have a list of stuff and they just go and they look for it and uh, they're just resellers. And, you know, we just live in an entirely different world in that way. And it's sort of killed some of the, uh, it's drained some of the fuel of that world of collectability. And I guess what you'd call collector culture, collector culture. But the other thing that killed it, because it's not just that having access, greater access, you know, and uh, and a certain oversaturation in the market damaged these things. It's also that the idea of making things collectible from the start, this manufactured collectability, became really big, and I, I experienced it in the '90s. I'm sure it started before that. Uh, but you started to see comic books. They'd come out with a comic book, and instantly you'd be like, this is the collector edition. Oh, we got the collector edition. Meanwhile, it's mass-produced. You know, the collector edition was, you know, a million copies were made. Oh, it has a, a reflective cover. It has a hologram cover. Oh, you, are you going to buy the collector edition? It's going to be worth something. You heard that all the time. It's going to be worth something. And you can see that it happened with the baseball card crash. Uh, I had a friend. I have a friend uh, who he's like the least characteristic baseball card collector. He's like the last person in the world I would ever imagine collected baseball cards growing up. And we didn't grow up together, but he has told me about how, like as a kid, his parents would take him around and they would collect baseball cards. And he had this huge collection and the whole idea. And he didn't even like sports or baseball, but it was like he's very much a collector and a scavenger. And so he ended up with this big baseball card collection. Uh, and I collected football cards. I had some baseball cards. I wouldn't say I collected football cards, but I was into football. So, of course, I was going to get some. And uh, But my friend with the baseball card collector, <laughs> funny to think of him that way, uh, he, he was telling me how, like, the crash, just, like, all of his baseball cards ended up worthless 
because they were mass produced and, you know, with the internet, everything became immediately obtainable and oversaturated the market. So baseball cards, which were always sort of the gold standard of collectability, you know, certain cards were worth a million dollars. I don't know how much they were worth. The Hank Aaron rookie card, you know, even somebody who had no interest in baseball cards would collect or baseball would collect them. And even people who had no knowledge of baseball cards knew about certain cards. They knew that certain cards were these just incredible collectibles, you know, that could fetch you all this money. You could fetch you all this money. But the market totally crashed for him. And I think that happened with comics because I still have some comics that I found in storage and... You know, I have a lot of Spawn comics, for one, and I'm selling those in lots. But, uh, you know, a lot of these things, they were so mass-produced that they're just not collectible, even if they're in great condition. You know, I'm grateful for any comic that I can sell, honestly, now, because uh, just that, that collector boom, that manufactured collectability just really killed you know, a lot of the worth of these things. And uh, when you when you create something simply for the sake of it being collectible, but you mass produce it, you're basically going to kill that. You're just, you're trying to sell it initially. I mean, what those companies were doing is they were trying to make a bunch of money initially. They didn't care what you resell it for. Why would they? They don't get a cut. They don't get a piece of that. So why would they care what you resell it for in 20 years? And I mean, it happened with the Beanie Baby thing. That's a great example. The big Beanie Baby boom and the Beanie Baby crash. The BBC and the Beanie Baby crash. You know, I saw this mini documentary. I think I've actually mentioned it uh, about this dad who collected Beanie Babies. And his whole idea was that he was going to sell them to pay for his kid's college education. And now it's this documentary is from a few years ago. But, you know, in 2015, he's sitting there. His kids are grown and he has a basement still filled with Beanie Babies. He even made custom shelves for them. And, you know, he never was able to sell them. You know, the, the market crashed on, on that guy's invest, for that guy's investment. And that's a great example of what I mean, where things had this, you know, this false collectability. It was this manufactured, manufactured uh, collectability. And, I mean, my sister a few years ago gave me a big stack of records she was a, a teenager during the grunge boom. The grunge, I'm talking about all these booms. The Beanie Baby boom, the grunge boom. I mean, uh, I'm just, uh, I'm talking about nostalgia, so why not? Uh, but this is the dark side of nostalgia. It's when it crashes, the, the nostalgia mill crash. And then I feel like the nostalgia mill is just, it's, it's both a contributor and somehow the product of this crash or these different crashes that I'm talking about. Uh, it has a direct relationship with it, uh, to say the least. But my sister gave me this big stack of records, and just one of them, for example, it was this Alice in Chains EP, 7-inch EP, that came in like a, a pseudo-snakeskin sleeve. How's that for poetry? Pseudo-snakeskin sleeve. Uh, and somebody came up with that idea, you know, <laughs> somebody, some record company, I doubt it was the band was like, let's have this limited edition Alice in Chains EP and it'll come in a pseudo snakeskin sleeve. It'll be kind of textural, kind of feel like not real snakeskin, but it feels like something feels like something. Uh, and, uh, 
so I, I just looked it up, though. I was like, you know, I'm going to see if this is worth something. Because that's what it all comes down to. Is this worth something? It's not simply, you know, collecting things for the sake of collecting them, obtaining rarity for the sake of its rarity or uniqueness. It's, it was always this idea of this is going to be worth something. You know, not to say there weren't people who just wanted things because they wanted that object and they had no desire to part with it, but there was this kind of greed motivating all that stuff where it was this, uh, just this sort of, sort of an innocent greed, though. You know, whereas, like, the companies who are producing these, like, you know, manufactured, limited edition, but mass-produced, you know, mass-produced limited edition items, oh, we made 100,000 less of this thing. Instead of 2 million copies in, in the first pressing, we made, uh, you know, 15, <laughs> a million, five, whatever, 1.5 million. We made whatever. Instead of 2 million, we made whatever. We made one less, it's limited edition. Uh, but that is true, that is not innocent greed. The companies who would mass produce these things and market them as collectible, that is just straight up greed. Knowing that people are going to buy this thing for a slightly inflated price, you know, it's playing, it's, it's turning people into suckers, and of course people are guilty for being suckers. Uh, you know, there's, there's an element where it's like, yeah, you kind of got yourself into this mess. I mean, you ended up buying all those beanie babies to pay for your kid's college education, and you thought you were pulling a fast one on the world. You kind of got yourself into that mess, but there's also an innocence to it. And a lot of, there is, there's a lot of innocence to that whole idea of like, oh, this is going to be worth something someday. All these baseball cards, they're going to be worth something someday. Meanwhile, they made way too many of them. They made way too many because they knew they played. You got played like a sucker. Um, strike. You struck out the second you decided to invest in baseball cards, man. Uh, but uh, there is an innocence to it. But a lot of this stuff does play on this idea of, of you know, this this innocent greed. And that's a phrase I've never heard before. You know, why have I never heard people talk about innocent greed? You know, a sort of harmless greed where, you know, you just end up hurting yourself, but it's not like you were up to anything nefarious. I mean, we hear greed and we think it's the worst thing in the world. Just the idea of being greedy. Oh, you're being greedy. When really there's a lot of, there's so many shades of greed. I don't care about shades of gray. Let's talk about the shades of greed. Don't have time for it today. Don't have time for the many shades of greed. But there is an innocent greed. And usually it's just like... You know, you're just going to end up stepping on a rake. You know, you're going to end up with a, a basement full of beanie babies until the day you die. You know, that's that's where innocent greed gets you. It means, like, giving all your baseball cards away to a junk store when you thought that they were going to, like, buy you a house someday. You know, that's where innocent greed gets you. It's not nefarious. It's just sort of pathetic. There's also a video online, speaking of Beanie Babies, of this couple. They were married, and they invested heavily in Beanie Babies. And I think this was before... It may have been before the big Beanie Baby crash. Not just the BBC, but the BBBC, the big Beanie Baby crash. Uh, I think this might have been before... It was either before the crash or before people accepted the, that the crash was just the new reality and it was never going back up <laughs> the stock on those things was never going back up but it was a couple who they were getting a divorce and they were filmed in court and you can look this up online i'm sure and uh 
<laughs> they were dividing their beanie babies in court and one by one it was their divorce proceeding and they were dividing their assets but they were dividing the beanie babies one by one and you had this couple you know standing there and i can't remember if they were doing it themselves or if, i think maybe their lawyers were doing it but either way, there were people in a courtroom dividing beanie babies one by one, and they were being very uh they were all they were very solemn and serious about it. They were being very greedy, very very innocently greedy, because that's the other place that innocent greed will take you. It will take you into a courtroom with your soon-to-be ex-wife dividing your beanie baby collection one by one. That's where your innocent greed will get you. But they show this lawyer's face, and the lawyer is just, this guy can't believe he's there. I mean, this guy went to law school, and he's he's in a courtroom with this couple dividing their beanie babies, and they'll never talk to each other again. I like the idea of them getting back together, though. I would love to know what ended up happening to them. It'd be sad if the guy got remarried and then divorced to his from his new wife and then had to have his beanie babies divided yet again. He keeps getting married, and each time he loses more and more Beanie Babies until he's finally just left with one. Maybe that's where innocent greed will get you. Just one Beanie Baby left and a whole bunch of ex-wives. Um, but to go back to the Alice in Chains pseudo-snakeskin-sleeved EP, I looked it up, and, you know, it, it doesn't sell for much. Because it's a great example of that, where it's like, this is an an instant collectible. And maybe there was a window at time where you could sell that, maybe when eBay was brand new, you know, maybe before the nostalgia mill was firmly built. You know, because I think there was a window of time where it was, that was the time. There was a time to get rid of that stuff. There was a time to unload. And of course, you can still sell things. Things still have some collector value. But what made things collectible in the first place was not because they were manufactured to be that way. Like, I remember seeing, like, I think it was an Incredible Hulk comic on the wall of a comic book store growing up, and it was the first appearance of Wolverine. It was the first time he ever appears in a story, and it was selling for a ton of money, and it was like, they could not have planned that. They introduced this ridiculous character, I guess he's ridiculous, I don't know, like all superheroes are, uh, but a character called Wolverine, and he's short and wears a yellow costume, and... Uh, you know, this, I feel like the youth preacher again who's like, there's this character. Have you heard of the book of Wolverine? Uh, in the book of Wolverine, in Wolverine uh, 316, uh, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, something like that. You couldn't manufacture that. You d they didn't know that this was going to become an insanely popular character who was going to have a life of his own, you know, movies all kinds of stuff well into the into 2010s, you know. They didn't know this character was still going to be wildly popular or just be wildly popular decades from now. So they didn't know that this particular Incredible Hulk comic was going to be, you know, a major, you know, collector's item. And that was true for a lot of, you know, probably the first wave of collector cultures. You had things that, you know, just by being the first issue of something they just, you know, became a collector's item. Records, it could be anything, anything that falls into the category of collectible. They didn't manufacture this. They made a first pressing, you know, they did this, something had a misprint, the first pressing had a different cover, the first pressing, you know, had a slightly different color, 
they used a different printer for the first pressing, so the the yellow is a little more uh, a little more brown, and that makes it you know collectible. But later, when they started doing that on purpose, you know, of course, those things aren't going to be worth anything. When you start trying to manufacture it, when you try to force collectability, of course, you're going to kill the entire concept. Uh, you're going to kill the entire thing. And and again, if it's for the sake of just owning it, you know, there's some people they want to have every variation. It doesn't matter. They're never going to sell it. It's important to them. They have a sustained interest in holding on to this thing. That's an entirely different story. But the idea of this is going to be worth something, you know, that very much uh, ended in disappointment for a lot of people. And I don't know what to say of it now. I, th- I think there's sort of something, uh, there's some sort of justice in that. I do feel like there's some sort of justice. There's a part of me that doesn't like the way things have turned. There's a part of me that doesn't like the fact that the nostalgia mill came about, even though it was in- inevitable, really, uh, just with the you know, popularity of the internet and the documentation and access we had to everything, past, present, and soon the future. Soon we'll be able to access the future. I would say if you can access the future through anything right now, it would be through the internet. In some ways, I think you can kind of, it is a crystal ball of sorts, no doubt. So let's just say past, present, and future. Of course, that would create this nostalgia mill. Of course, this would kill collectability. Uh, of course, it would at least help kill it. You know, like I said, I think these companies who decided to start, you know, you know, manufacturing collectability, I think they got the ball rolling on killing that entire idea. But there's a part of me that's sad about it because that stuff was cool to me. That stuff seemed so cool to me as a kid. Even stuff that was unobtainable to me. A lot of the stuff that was cool and mysterious to me was the stuff that was unobtainable. It was the original appearance of Wolverine on the wall of the comic shop that I'm never going to be able to afford. It was the G.I. Joes, the first line of G.I. Joes that the mean comic merchant pulled away from me and yelled at me for looking at. There was an element of mystery to all of that stuff, uh, but I think a part of it was the fact that it was, you know, somewhat unobtainable. Uh, and as a kid, you just kind of get what you can get. You know, you get what you can get. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, that innocent side of greed was there. Like, I remember getting things as a kid and thinking, I've got to take good care of this because it's going to be worth something. It's not like I wasn't free it's, it's not like I was free from that way of thinking I mean that way of thinking probably led to me holding on to a lot of things uh, that I otherwise would never have held on to or never taken good care of uh, it was that sort of innocent greed but fortunately I didn't end up with a single beanie baby and a bunch of ex-wives so things worked out pretty good huh uh, but a part of me is sad that you know what's left of that world it seems kind of artificial and it is, because like I said, it's a lot of it is this like neo-vintage, I hate saying that, uh, but that's sort of what a lot of this stuff is. It's like creating new things that are designed to play into the things you liked about the past, and everything does it. It's not even just these video game t-shirts. I always point those out because you see them fucking everywhere. Like I said, you see it on the on people's car decals down the street, Um but you also see it in art and music. 
where these people start bands, they start a metal band and they're like, we're going to be, we're going to look and sound like this band that came out in 1988. And, uh, you know, even though we're not that and we don't smell like that, we lack the scent that is so desirable in that thing that we are emulating. We're going to do it anyway to try to play on that. We're going to try to be sarcophago, even though they were a bunch of Brazilian teenagers just doing what seemed natural and whatever. We're going to, we're going to purposely do that. We're going to manufacture that. And we're a bunch of 30 year old men. You know, that kind of thing is so common and these things just cannibalize further and they just eat themselves and there's a market for it. I mean, people, what else are you going to do? What else are you going to get into? You know, we have fewer and fewer new things. I mean, you just you see it with uh, the movies being made, TV. Uh, you know, the, it's just, you know, read, you know, I don't need to get into the whole, like, remake thing. I mean, I feel like we're beyond even complaining about remakes now. You know, it, it was so hot to complain. I, I, I don't like all the remakes. It's like we're beyond even complaining about the remakes. You know, this the level of cannibalization has gone so deep. The level of, of recycling and rewashing ha- has become, you know, so widespread. It's just what there is. And you either just give in and are like, I'll just watch this. I'll just be into this, I guess. Or you just don't pay attention at all. And that goes back to what I'm saying, where, like, a part of me is sad that this is the, the sum total of all these years of pop culture and you know, interests and all this stuff. A part of me is sad about it, but a part of me feels like it was just inevitable anyway. And it's all leading us to this place where we can achieve some kind of meaningful detachment from it all. And I think I did talk about this probably a year or two ago where I was was talking about Star Wars and I was saying how it's great that the prequels were bad. I'm glad the prequels were bad. NPR in the car, glad the prequels were bad. Got all kinds of rhymes for you. But I'm glad the prequels were bad, even though I went through like a 10-year period of being really mad that uh, Star Wars prequels ended up being a disappointment. That actually, first of all, gave me a lot to think about at the time that I might not otherwise have thought about. But, you know, if Star Wars had kept making good movies, who knows where I'd be? You know, maybe I would be that guy with the G.I. Joes, pulling them away from the fingers of kids and yelling at kids. You know, if, if, if the Star Wars prequels had been as good as the original trilogy and the original trilogy hadn't been hacked up with, you know, digital, you know, add-ins, uh, and that's a great example, the special edition, because that, that's that's a whole other element of collector that manufactured collectability of it's like special edition, special edition, everything's a special edition. And I mean, like, what was special edition about those Star Wars uh, original trilogy like add-ins? It's like we added a bunch of digital effects, and now they're the only versions you can find. Like the only versions that are on TV or on DVD are those special editions. So what's so special about them? Uh, and of course, that's how it would work out. Of course, that would end up being the case, because that's what happened with every special edition of anything that was made. It was just, of course, it was mass produced. Of course, it became the standard for things. Uh, But I'm glad that the prequels were bad, because if they had been as good and magical as the original trilogy, I might have stayed obsessed with Star Wars. You know, the, the first prequel came out when I was in seventh grade. 
And that's around the age you start to develop other interests. I mean, that's around the age that I stopped buying action figures. It's around the age that I stopped caring about some of the things that I had cared more about when I was younger. Uh, and, uh, you know, started getting more into music, you know, more into other interests. Uh, and, you know, if the Star Wars movies had stayed really fucking good, I might have just become, you know, that guy who hoards collectibles and, and is miserable. I might have owned a collectible shop. I might have had a booth at, you know, some sort of swap meet or comic convention and been that guy who people look at and they're like, look at him. He's, he's surrounded by like wall-to-wall action figures and comic books, but look at how miserable he is. Look at, what, look at how greedy he is. You know, I might have become that person if George Lucas had made the prequels good. So in that way, I'm thankful that they were bad. Uh, I'm thankful that, you know, you got to look at that and be like, well, you know what? I might have gone on a different path, you know, if, if those movies had been even a little bit better, even just a little bit better. My life might be different. Uh, not to say better, not to say superior in any way, but I'm glad that things branched the way they did. And in the same way that I'm grateful for that, I feel like some sort of justice has been served. The fact that all of this innocent greed didn't play out for people, like the baseball cards didn't buy you a a million-dollar house in the Hamptons. You know, your beanie babies didn't put your kids through college. They didn't even sustain your marriage. Uh, All these things, you know, are losing their value. You don't even care about them as much as you used to. It's not even that you can't sell them for as much as you thought you were going to be able to sell them for in 20 years. It's that you don't even really care about them. I mean, it's like, look at the millennials who live in apartments that don't have anything in them. You know, people barely have books. They barely have these material objects. And uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and I don't know, some sort of meaningful detachment seems to be the end result of all this. And I'm not even going to go into the obvious spiritual parallel, not even parallel, uh, just the the obvious spiritual uh, territory uh, that that falls into of meaningful detachment. I think it speaks for itself, and I don't think you have to get spiritual about it, but I think it inevitably has a spiritual conclusion whether you realize it or not. So I could sit around being mad that they remade something from my childhood and they didn't do it justice. I could be mad that these collectible things lost their value. I can be mad about the world we're living in where it seems like fewer and fewer products are being created that I'm genuinely interested in. And maybe I'm alone to some degree in that. I mean, I know I'm not alone, but maybe... You know, maybe I am jaded or bitter to some degree, although I don't feel that way. I don't feel jaded or bitter. And when I say meaningful detachment, I don't mean it in a negative way. Because I think when you say detachment, there's this idea of, oh, not caring, not caring equals depressed or angry or not maybe not angry, but we have this association, you know, of not caring as as if it's some sort of... Uh, like we've lost something. Oh, if you don't care, you've lost something. When really it's caring, it's being concerned that brings us so much of our misery. And there's where the obvious spiritual aspect of this comes in, where, you know, detachment, 
you're losing attachment. You're letting go of attachment. And what is attachment? I mean, there's, there's some things that feel good to be attached to. Loving people, keeping people in our lives, things that make us feel good. I mean, there's a reason to stay attached to certain things. But when you have the opportunity to let go of an attachment, and not just the opportunity, but when everything is telling you to let go of it, that's the perfect time to do it. And it feels so good to do it. And so in that way, when you know culture kind of eats itself, when pop culture eats itself, and not just pop culture, like I'm talking about, it's not just the mainstream. It's also what's going on, you know, in the underground. It's going on in, you know, these subversive art forms, uh, you know, these, these lesser known, more obscure communities that exist out there, whether it's something based around music or art or some niche interest. I think there's a similar process that's happening and it's been happening. And it is providing everybody with an opportunity to let go. And when you let go of these things, you don't feel this sense of loss. You feel a sense of freedom. And that freedom allows you to do whatever you want, whether that's nothing or something else, but you don't have to replace it with anything. When you detach yourself or you experience some sort of meaningful detachment from whether it's something individual or something, a larger process, you know, but the idea is having that sense of meaningful detachment. It's not detaching yourself so you you can attach yourself to something else. It's just, it's simply letting go and seeing what's there, seeing who you are when you do let go of those external things. And they are very much external. Uh, That's what I've realized in going through this sort of detachment process. And trust me, I'm not entirely detached. I still hold on to a lot of things. And some of that's by choice. Some of that's just because I just haven't really reached a point where I feel like I can let go of certain things. But I'm more comfortable than ever in doing it. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. 